This week on Hard Beeswax, we want to introduce you all to our first episode of Tales from the Cosmic Bathtub. We realize that we are just two individuals who are part of this global educational movement, and we want to be very clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. We will start with a verse that I've chosen for its Michaelmas theme. It's a verse from Rudolf Steiner that really focuses one's attention on the consciousness that you have around your speech. Most of the time, I would say we are unconscious of our thoughts and the living quality of thinking that Steiner pointed to again and again. So this verse for me is a Michaelmas verse because it shows the verse how a thought manifests as a word, the word as a deed, the deed into habit, and habit into character. So you're seeing how the way you think determines who you are, you're the character of your being. And then if you are aware of that and you start watching it, you start to realize how much, how unconscious we are when we actually think. We're very undisciplined. And Steiner's whole bit was to use thinking to become a better person. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its way with care, and let it spring from love, born out of respect for all beings. So today we are recording our first episode of our Tales from the Cosmic Bathtub. Yay. Yay indeed. <laughs> this is the this is the deep stuff, the the heavier stuff maybe in um in our conversations around this Waldorf education thing. Right, there's just so much background material that we don't really even get to go into during the interviews. So this is our chance really to pull back and talk a little bit about some of the vocabulary and, and ideas behind um, what we've been talking about so far. I think especially because so much of our audience is likely to be alumni yeah, who may not have had the chance to learn about some of the deeper, what was that all about with regards to their education? Our hope is to provide some of that, right? And yeah. connect with connect to the experiences that you actually have in a Waldorf school or in an anthroposophical community with the deeper intentions behind those experiences. Right, right. And, you know, I think to start out, Taylor, we probably should explain what a cosmic bathtub is. We probably should. <laughs> I actually had no understanding of what the cosmic bathtub was until I, in my teacher training, had the opportunity in the renewal weeks to do a, a class on biography work. Yep. And in hmm, biography work, how does one even describe biography work? Well, you, I mean, biography work is looking back over a person's life. You can look at a historical figure. Uh, it's often very rich to do your own life, um, but there are certain markers, certain rhythms. Um, they tend to be in numeric patterns, seven-year cycles, 12-year cycles, different planetary cycles, and when they all hit. Um, and, and then, you know, what happened at those different times. So in the Waldorf schools, we often talk about seven-year cycles as kind of a base rhythm, change of teeth, puberty, full maturity at 21. <laughs> <laughs> Debatable. Excuse me, but then there's 28, 35, 42, obviously 49, 56, 63, mm -hmm. and then 70. And then really, I mean, according to what I've um, studied and learned, you're after 70, you're kind of free of the karmic 
implications of your actions, uh, which is another fancy way of saying oftentimes um, in anthroposophy, there's two things. Um, there's, you know, one person's karma, destiny, and then, you know, in anthroposophy, there's this belief in multiple lives and reincarnation. So you live a life and then you have another life and when something that happens in one life can affect the next life or something that happens multiple uh, lives in the past affects something either at present or in the future. And one idea, just to take that a step further, because we're going into the cosmic bath. We haven't actually explained the cosmic bathtub yet. But we'll get there. We'll get there. But, but my point is, is that one of the ideas is that the reason why we're alive on the earth is to help untangle or resolve any kind of karmic uh, knots that have happened in past lives. And you can't do that in the spiritual world. You can only do that here on the physical earth. Um, and, and so that's one of the things that we're supposed to be doing is to remediate or fix or resolve issues that have been happened to us in the past. One of the ways that I love to think about it at, is that we are presented with opportunities. Yes. Right? We are presented with opportunities to work through, address, confront maybe those karmic moments from our past or past incarnations, past lives that we didn't get a chance to before. And and that there are and and what's so fascinating about this is the overlap between other other disciplines, right? If you look at astrology and planetary positioning, you know, you see similar points in time in a person's life, similar numeric patterns emerge between astrology, between what Steiner's talking about in these developmental cycles, these seven years, these 12 years. You see a lot of parallels across different modalities, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And so the reason that this cosmic bathtub is called a cosmic bathtub is that it is, if you imagine a... A, um, a bowl. A bowl, yes, yes. A cross-section of a bowl with two high points and then a big dip curving down in the middle that we can kind of use that as a lifeline in mm -hmm. a way. And is it 35 at the bottom? Yes. So 35 is at the bottom of the bowl. 35 or 42, depending. Yeah, 35 or 42 is at the bottom of the bowl, curving all the way back up to 70. Right. 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 And so, uh, and so then you can kind of break this bowl up into these years. And what I did in my biography work that I did, where we were looking at ourselves, very, you know, very indulgent of us. But yeah, just looking at ourselves as a way to better understand our own lives and mm -hmm. maybe some of the opportunities that we'd had in our lives was then we started plotting events. Yeah. Listing events, moments, memories, things that stand out from your own biography as points on this cosmic bathtub. Right. And that bowl can represent one person's life, but it also cosmically can represent a whole society or the a stream of human consciousness throughout history. So we can take the same, you know, bowl shape or bathtub and look at ancient Egypt yes. and, and Mesopotamia and the Middle Ages and or Greek and Ro Greece and Rome and Middle Ages and Renaissance and you know, just kind of chart, you know, we see we see all of human history in the cosmic bathtub and we see the cosmic bathtub reflected in each individual's life. So it's very um, useful that way. Yes, I know, especially um, Paul Gerlach and his teaching about history and these kind of streams of consciousness. And, and Paul did such a great job of bringing in kind of more Eastern history yeah. into the curriculum, right. right? We tend to, as people in the United States, to get very focused on how did we get here? The right? Western the, the Western stream, the Western yeah. traditions. And, you know, Paul did a great job of kind of applying this, these, these streams of societies to these great ancient cultures from the East as yeah. well. Right. And there is, it seems that for many people who come to 
Steiner that they're just these little clicks. They're these little moments where things seem to make sense, yeah. right? And I think this is one of those moments where when you really dig into, you know, this this seemingly mundane image of the cross the bowl <laughs> and and yet you see it over and over again as a repeating pattern. And in preparation for this, Matthew and I were reading a lecture about um, about this time of year about Michaelmas, and he is talk. Steiner says something which is that you know the human being is a microcosm of the cosmos. Yes, we in ourselves are this. We can you know to see the world in a grain of sand, right? It's that same idea that that within us you see mirrored or reflected all of these greater impulses that we see in the world that we see in the greater cosmos, right? right? And this is another example of that pattern that Steiner is seeing. Hey, there are these, there's this pattern throughout history. There's this pattern when we look at humans in society. We, there is a pattern when we look at human beings as individuals. Right. And that pattern is seemingly universal. Right. I, yeah, that's exactly right. So, so in talking about the cosmic bathtub in these episodes, we really would like to take your questions. If there's something in an interview that you heard that you didn't understand, um, we, will, we will be talking about terms like the etheric body, the astral body, the ego. That's already come up in some of our interviews. Um, it's really just a place to kind of talk about, you know, it's a place to understand the foundational ideas and terms within the Waldorf movement. And there's, there's a lot. There's... There's a lot. And I think that, you know, in the in the grand scheme of the cosmic bathtub, you know, Matthew and I are still pretty early on our journey. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> we have <laughs> we have we have many more years of um karmic resolution ahead of us, much more wisdom to gain. And yet we're both trying to wrestle with understanding these things to the best of our ability and we'll try to bring you along with us as we Talk yeah, about absolutely. these things. Great. So, yeah, it's really a, a place for exploration. For this, our first Tales from the Cosmic Bathtub episode, we really wanted to focus on festival life because it is so rhythmic and it, it's one of the things that I think most families really experience for the first time if they haven't grown up in a Waldorf school. There's just such a rich festival life within the Waldorf School movement. Um, we'd like to share specifically about this time of year where we're recording in the fall, in the autumn time. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to, we wanted to give a quick overview of what festival life looks like and the calendar. And, and then, you know, just focus a little in a little bit on the, on the autumn holidays and our experiences about that. Yeah, and so... I think that when you look at the festival life in a Waldorf school or in an anthroposophical community that's celebrating these festivals, most importantly is that the festivals tend to follow the seasons. Yes, right? absolutely. There's, there's a seasonal rhythm to the festivals, and then there's also the rhythm of the school year, right. which in many ways is, an, is a kind of human imposition yeah. upon the natural rhythms of the year. But the school calendar... I think is a is a reflection of a time when the children needed to be home in the summer right. to work and to harvest, right? And yeah. so that that summer break in many ways maybe is still a reflection of the natural rhythms of the year. And um but I think there are also festivals and rituals in a Waldorf school that mark the passage of time. I'm thinking specifically of things like the rose ceremony, lily ceremony, yeah. um verse giving ceremonies that there are these these moments that almost serve as coming of age celebrations yes, in the school. And while we want to talk about those, I think we're in this episode specifically going to be focused more on the seasonal festivals that come throughout the the school year. Right. Absolutely. I mean, stepping back a little bit, there is a understanding, hopefully, that, you know, the festivals that we're talking about came out of Germany and, um, and they tend to be Western festivals. And a, a, a large amount of time, I think, in going forward is this question of how do we incorporate more 
festivals within the calendar. But specifically, these were these festivals um, started with with the seasons and the calendars, and then um, really had to do with light. I would say primarily it, they revolve around light. Whether there's more light coming in or yeah. less light or or in between, um, and then also in a big way you're talking about how the individual uh, relates to the, the cosmic um, phenomena of light and what does the, an individual have to do when, when uh, the light is, starts to d- decrease and what is the individual doing as the light increases. Yeah, and just going back briefly to your comment about the fact that many of these festivals and so many of the rhythms that we see in Waldorf schools, especially in the United States, are a reflection of just the community rhythms of a village in Germany, right? Yeah. That, that, we, um, that we see still many of these festivals celebrated because they're very much embedded and rooted in the Waldorf tradition. I think we also see that depending on where you are regionally, depending on the culture and community of a school, we see a lot of other festivals coming in. Absolutely. We have, um, I know at the school where Matthew and I were, we saw Diwali celebrated in some classes. We saw Dia de los Muertos emerge as a seasonal holiday. We were in the southwestern United States, so that was something culturally that was a part of our community. And I think that more and more there is an effort to say, hey, how do we apply some of these you know, cosmic um, impulses mm-hmm. to bringing other festivals in, yeah, in a pedagogically appropriate way, right? For these I, kids. I mean, you know, I think the festivals hold a community together. I saw that, you know, in Santa Fe, and you know, they and they the festivals, you know, the best ones reflect the local culture and 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 the celebration of the community and. And it, it really helps us. I remember as a student, it really helped me anchor myself in, in time. Oh, now it's the time to, for this festival or that festival. And it helped me to understand, you know, what was happening outside. Why were the leaves falling off? Mm-hmm. Or, oh, we're, you know, pressing apples now because, you know, because it's harvest season or whatever. So, yeah, I think, I think the point of the festival life is really, it's a really fun and community-wide way to hold the rhythms of the year and and to hold the community together. It is one of the biggest things I've lost since the closing of the Santa Fe Walter School is our festival life and, and trips and, and stuff like that. Um, and it's really important to celebrate. I remember when I was in Peace Corps in, in Guinea, West Africa, there wasn't a lot of cel- celebration. There wasn't a lot of festival life, and it felt really like a huge absence, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think when I think of myself, I can spend a whole year thinking just about myself, but it's really in the festival life where we start to think, I find myself thinking outside of myself. Yes. Speaking for myself. I agree. And I think that that rhythm is so important because for so many of us, we we live a life now where we are removed from or we get to exempt ourselves from the rhythms of the year. Mm-hmm. Because even though the winter months are coming, we still have light in our homes. We can still illuminate them to be as bright as we'd like. Even though the weather is turning colder, we our, our wardrobe changes-ish, but it doesn't ha- we don't have to, you know, bring out the the sweaters that were handmade especially for this time of year. We can at any time of the year eat a banana or yeah, have apples, right? We we we're we living are, further away from nature. Yes, we are living further away from nature. It's almost like in many ways we've tried to, you know, rise above those rhythms. Yeah. And yet I feel like these festivals really root, especially children, back in that time. And that, you know, I when I think of memories of festivals, I think of I think of excitement. I loved the festivals. I think of there being a moment of reverence. Exactly. And that that we we live in a very sarcastic, humorous time where many things are made light of. And I even remember, while maybe that was a, li- a living feeling in my day-to-day life, that in the festivals I saw, 
I saw students older than me. I saw adults. I saw everyone around me really find this center and this reverence for whatever we were celebrating. And that really stuck with me. Yeah, it's really, you know, there's there's always a million ways to tease about a certain festival. Yes. Or, you know, this happened or it's always hokey that, you know, this happened or whatever. But what I've always found as a student and as a teacher is that there is a moment of reverence for the festival. And, you know, oftentimes I can include myself in this, you would look up and say, oh, well, when I'm in a senior, I want to be in this role. Yes. Or I can't wait until I am part of the skits for, for the Halloween, All Hallows' Eve walk. Or, you know, and so you have this deeper recognition, even if it's, you know, joked about a little bit, you know, made fun, made light of, but you, you have younger students looking up at older students. And when the older students, even for a moment, take it seriously and take up Mike Iel's sword and, and, you know, tames the dragon, you, you do have that connection there or the dances around the maypole or, you know, and I think as a student, it's, you know, there's, like good-natured humor to mm-hmm. it, but then there's also a reverence. And in and, and those festivals, I mean, typically, it's what I it's one of the things I most remember. Like, I, yes. I'm not sure if I remember most of my academic lessons, but, but, you know, festival life just imprints so deeply and that I think that's, it's, it's very valuable in that way. And I think, like you said, Matthew, it's what people miss. Yeah. It's what, when you suddenly go out into the world where these rhythms aren't just unconscious, right? It, it was like, I mean, I remember as a teacher, you know, in, in, in faculty meetings saying, okay, all right, we're coming up to Michaelmas. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we need to prepare for. But it was so rhythmic that it was just everyone just fell fell into step. And right. the students knew what to do in many ways. The teachers knew what to do. That it, it was really, it lived in our bodies. Yes, absolutely. And... So then suddenly to come out of that and, you know, I'm a newer parent and I'm sitting here looking around my house of saying, oh, my gosh, how am I how am I going to bring this feeling into my home? Right. How am I going to try and emulate that? Whereas before, OK, great, buddy, we're bundling up and we're going to Mayfair. Right. Exactly. That, that even even though you're a tiny squealing child, you're you're going to grow up with these sounds around you. And I agree. It's one of the things that I have I have felt most acutely missing yeah. since the closure of the Santa Fe school. Well, I mean, the community held so much and then an individual usually can't hold the same amount, right? So it's so much easier to show up to a festival than to do everything yourself. But that said, there are ways, and I'm sure Taylor, maybe you had that too, like in your house, my mom always had like an advent garden. Mm-hmm. And then we had like these typical things that would... would my mom was very good about changing the decorations of our house to mimic that, but it was never quite the same as a harvest festival or the fall fair or, you know, whatever the, you know, the holiday fair, whatever it was called in your community. Yeah. I think one of the things most people do, especially with younger children is a nature table. Yeah. Right. And having a seasonal nature table and maybe, maybe setting the scene with some, you know, golden red or yellow silks, maybe some, you know, uh, one of the little wooden um, Austin, Austinheimer, is is that what they're called? The the little wood carved? The wood carving? I don't remember the name, but, you know, maybe a a squirrel. And then that as children then are out in the world, then they, when they see something beautiful or something that stands out to them, something that, you know, brings up that reverence, then that's the kind of thing then that gets brought back to the nature table. Absolutely. I think we're still a little bit young for a nature table in my home. <laughs> we, uh, we, we are, um, yes, we, we have, uh, done a lot of nature table destruction so far this autumn, but we have high hopes for, for, um, for that coming. Nice. nice. Very nice. <laughs> So, Taylor, then thinking into autumn in particular, uh, you know, what are some of the cosmic rhythms that you understand about, about this time of the year? Well, I think if we look out into the natural world, we can see that we are on this cusp of 
the life and abundance of the summer and the harvest. And it's so fascinating to me that in many ways we are harvesting plants as they are dying, right? That the, the you know, you are picking the squash from the vine as the vine is, is shriveling and returning to the earth. So that we are on this, this cusp of the life of summer moving into, in many ways, the death and the darkness of the wintertime. Yeah, I really see that those two halves of the life, the, the natural life, and then the, the outer natural life in summer, and then the outer natural life dying away in wintertime. Yeah, and I think that a lot of, when you talk about the human being, a lot of times in anthroposophical terms, we have kind of the outer life, the inner life, right. outer, you know, kind of the outer light in the world versus the inner light that one might cultivate on a kind of almost on an in internal spiritual level. Yeah, almost your meditative life. Yes. <laughs> and so I think that Steiner talks about that as there is this, this death in autumn, that there's this need for us as individuals to really cultivate our inner life, our inner maybe strength of spirit as we come into the dark months of winter. Right. So the outer the outer death of nature is is balanced by the inner birth of one's soul life and vice versa. So and then I think in anthroposophy we're even talking about like the natural life when it dies it goes into the earth. And then so for the beings that are still on the earth, then it's a question of intensifying or strengthening our inner life to meet the challenges of, you know, the cold winter. And I, I love to think of this all in terms of kind of earlier iterations of humans living yeah. in a time where they were much more connected to the seasons or where we were much more connected to the seasons of winter really was a time of, of rest that there was physical rest. It was a lot of times where, you know, people, you know, early religious communities would, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, kind of worshiping together or praying together. There would be lots of reading. Telling stories telling around the campfire. Stories. Yeah. Yes, that it, it was this time of of inner work. Yeah. And and that that I, I think that 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 contrast and that it's and maybe that there is something of a magnetic pull in with the death of the of the plant life that, that maybe sometimes we can feel the the dragging inward as well, but that we need to maybe you know kind of stretch against that pull and stand more upright, right, and really cultivate our spirit. And I think that tying into Michaelmas as this you know, this midpoint in this transition, yeah. right? That this transition yeah. is happening in that, you know, if we look at the figure of Michael as being so much characterized by their uprightness. Yeah, their ego presence, uprightness. Yeah, and, and their... Clarity their, of thought. Yes, clarity of thought, uprightness, light, mm -hmm. fire, you know, sun, mm -hmm. and then wielding a sword, Mm -hmm. And that so frequently Michael is pictured or depicted holding a sword upright. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, the sword is fighting against gravity and yeah. pointing toward the sky or toward the heavens. Yeah, I didn't think about that as it pointed up, but that's really good. I, I know that um, this time, and I haven't actually kind of done the research about seeing if there's actually a chemical basis in this, but my understanding is that as... As you go through summer and the life of nature is, um, you know, is your the plants are breathing and it, it produces the all the the time of summer produces kind of a a sulfuric fog around the the earth and it's it's sulfur is the element associated with the dragon yeah and 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 it's it's this time of autumn when you have the the meteor showers, the coming in, the cosmic iron, um, you know, slicing through the the, the atmospheric buildup of sulfur, and and it's 
that that's the basis for Michael's iron sword is this these meteoric iron um, properties, especially back um, before modern times. Yeah, and that this kind of sulfuric. This is one of those things where sometimes I'm reading Steiner and I was like, what? What? Why? There's sulfur in, in the air, you know? But I think that, you know, he connects the this kind of sulfuric fog with the aramonic force, which is a whole other episode in and of itself of like these different forces, yeah. but that the aramonic force is maybe our most base animal instincts. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, there's, there's Araman and there's Lucifer. Yeah. So those are the, kind of the two of the, what I think Steiner called op- opposing forces or, or adversarial spiritual forces. And, and you have in Araman kind of a more machine-like character. And in Lucifer, you had kind of someone to delight the senses. And you need both. But I think the fog, you know, you, you have in the dragon, you have this, well, I think it's this, I'm not sure if, I actually don't know actually if it's Lucifer or Armon, but you have this um, very undefined, unconscious, um, spiritual stuff. And the, the, the meteoric iron is bringing consciousness to kind of this, this, you know the the frivolity and and excess of of summer yeah and and that the again i think it's the idea of bringing consciousness that the the kind of the dragon and the the will without thought yes almost and then that will without thought then is penetrated by this iron which is this consciousness and then and then harnessing those two together then we are able to maybe act or behave in a way that begets our highest selves right exactly because you 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 can't work you need lucifer you need araman you need the dragon right the the idea that you kill the dragon that's completely false you you never actually do a Michael never does away with the dragon. He just ta- he just tames the dragon and turns the dragon's hot fire into uses like a forge and he harnesses yeah. the power of the dragon, right. but brings consciousness to the dragon's force. Right, and so for the for one individual, right, you have your emotional life, right, you have your feelings and your desires, and and that's kind of taken to an extreme. That's kind of Lucifer. And then you could also look at your life as being very machine and, rith- you know, extremely rhythmic and unchanging and unable to, you know, break a break in some ways. And that's kind of Lucifer, just always Araman. doing... I mean, sorry, Araman, always doing the same thing and by rote, you know, there's, and there's no consciousness there either. So, like, you, you, you lose your consciousness on both extremes. Yeah. And, and, but you need those because you need to have form in your life. You need to have freedom in your life, but you need to have both under in full consciousness. Yeah. I think that's very beautifully said. And so in the Michaelmas festival, it, it almost is a pageant most typically when it's, when it's celebrated in Waldorf schools. And we oftentimes see the dragon um, portrayed in costume, oftentimes sixth grade. Sixth grade, for sure. Sixth graders is the dragon. What's, what's the pedagogical, do you know the pedagogical significance or? Why sixth grade versus all of them? Um, I don't know. Maybe that's. I, I think it has to do with the fact that it might be an aramonic year in the sense of the rules of ancient Rome and everything is very um, delineated and yeah, structured yeah. is my guess, but I don't actually know. Okay, we'll put a pin in that. We'll yeah. come back to yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, and and I think that I, 
the nuance of slaying the dragon versus taming the dragon was definitely lost on me as a child. I think that I I saw the dragon as something to be slain. <laughs> yeah. And that there was a lot of pomp and circumstance around the dragon's demise. And yet I think there's something really beautiful, especially for the time where we live in now, about the the necessity and the role that forces that it would so easy it would be so easy to write them off as evil. Right. Right. It would be so easy to look at human desire and say that is to be squashed, that is to be ignored, that is that has no place. And and we see we we've seen time and time again people try to do that. Right. And and I would maybe argue that we've seen that it backfires a little bit, that it, it doesn't necessarily work. Right. And so I think that this this nuance is so important in understanding this festival of, you know, that the we need the dragon. Yeah. Let's 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 outline what the festival what the pageant looks like. Okay. Well and, and it's different in every school. Right. But we can we can I, call on our own our own our own experiences. Typically, there's, um, I, I mean, it's always been sixth grade for me. Yeah. Um, the whole class would, would line up in a long line. There would be a couple students at the head of the dragon, it usually made out of paper mache or something like that. Yeah, a big, dramatic, I mean, almost wheelbarrow-sized paper mache head, yeah. fangs, sometimes, you know, streamers of flames falling out of the mouth. We, I, I remember students having, like, fire extinguishers and, and shooting, you know, fi- you know, fog or... Someone had the, the bee smokers. The bee smokers, yeah. Yeah, coming out the nostrils. Exactly. And then the whole class would line up and underneath kind of a dragon's body mm-hmm. and, and they would typically either walk across a soccer field is kind of what happened uh, when I was growing up. Very dramatic entrance. Dramatic entrance. And, and that entrance was, there was a, a whole play. There was the scene of a village usually or mm-hmm. some, some kind of harvest festival with maybe a mayor or you know, some wise elders. Um, and then the children would, uh, usually the third grade would be in farmer's costumes because mm-hmm. that was pedagogical for third grade. And then, um, you know, different different celebrations. There was a, the wise mother or the kind of mother nature figure. <laughs> and that was something that I experienced for the first time in Santa Fe. Oh, okay. Right? And so I think, but I think typically you're right that there was just this sense that the school community was gathered together in a circle as almost emulating a village gathering. Yes, absolutely. And, and celebrating a harvest festival. Yeah, yeah. And then the dragon would come It'd in. It would be dramatic entrance. Lots of drums, lots of screaming, typically. Yeah. And, and then there would be a process of each class. Well, I would say in my teaching life in Santa Fe, that we had a whole play. And verses of the play really spoke to that aged, those, those students. So, um, for example, you had 10th grade students, I think, talking about, or maybe it's 11th grade students, talking about we can use the dragon's hot fire when we do our metal working mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, the dragon, you know, is crafty, so it, it brings out, you know, kind mm-hmm. of these, you know, what does... You know, what can you use the dragon for? Well, you know, if you're studying biology, then we're going to poke you in the guts and figure out what you're made out of or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and then ultimately there was usually either a Michaelic figure who was chosen, frequently the seniors. It was usually a senior. Yeah, usually a senior would be chosen to be Michael. I honestly don't remember... In my growing up, I... In my growing up, it didn't have to be a student. It yeah. could have been a community member. Huh. And, so, and sometimes it's been... We've had community members, too, but in, at least at the Santa Fe Walder School, we used to always choose a senior. And it was a big deal to be... The, you would be chosen... The faculty would choose the, the senior. Sometimes there was multiple Mike I.L.s. Sometimes yeah. the, if the class was small enough, the whole class would be Mike I.L. Yeah, and, and that this... 
it was almost like then that individual who was chosen to represent Mikael was the community representative, right? Yep. That they had in some way lived in a way or conducted themselves in a way that upheld that Mikaelic ego presence, uprightness, character, and that they were chosen and then they would usually have a sword right? and they would then kind of tame the dragon through lowering their sword down and the dragon would mirror that movement and be subdued. Yeah. And then, and then you could come and they would say the dragon is safe. And then I remember my son wanting to, you know, touch the dragon and. Yeah. But then there was an invitation of, Hey, now that we are in balance, you may come and meet this thing. Yeah. We're in balance again. That's it. It's kind of a balance. It's not a destruction. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a balance. And I like that idea that at certain times of year, these certain forces get out of whack or, or that there's this ebb and flow and that these, these festivals maybe serve as a reminder to bring things back into balance. Right. So, you know, that's, that's maybe kind of the most formal part of the ceremony, but I'm so curious, what, what are your memories of Michaelmas? What about Michaelmas stood out to you as, as a kid growing up in a Waldorf school? So, I mean, right away, I remember when I was probably really young in first and second grade, actually feeling fear, like, what is this festival? Like, you know, and then to see the dragon and then to be, okay, things are safe. I, I remember having a very visceral feeling of like, oh, am I in danger? Oh, I'm safe. Um, I'm not sure if that's here or there, but that's one of my, my, one of my first feelings of Michaelmas was like that. Yeah. For me, it was the whole community singing together. Oh. It, I mean, and, and honestly, it, I, um, I, I still, I still sometimes tear up when I hear large groups of people singing together because it, there's something so, so beautiful. And at the time when I was at the Austin Waldorf school, it was, it was large and there were lots of, I mean, it was huge. It was the entire student body because- there were songs that were taught in first grade all the way up through high school and we would sing them in a round. And so hearing, you know, hearing hundreds of people singing around in unison, I mean, yeah. it was, yeah, that's a, yeah. it was deeply moving for me. And I mean, I, I have memories at every age of, um, of just feeling emotionally moved to tears yeah. by how, just how beautiful and powerful it was. Um, That's true. I do have that. I also, re- yeah, yeah. Go on. Our, our Michaelmas frequently seasonally was very close to the the sukkah, right? The Jewish um, uh-huh. harvest oh, yeah. festival, uh-huh. and so I know that I I believe that after Michaelmas, the third graders would go to the the sukkah, the sukkah uh-huh. and and yet. You know, as a whole community, I remember the kindergartners doing dragon bread, but um, it was really just the pageant. And then we went on with our lives. Whereas once I came to Santa Fe as a teacher, suddenly Michaelmas was a whole day. Yeah, yeah, we did the games then. And it was such a beautiful thing because I think one of the most powerful things that I really saw click in as a high school teacher was in these moments where especially with adolescence, we really empowered them to be their most upright selves in the presence of younger children. Yes. And maybe there are some assumptions about adolescents that we perceive that they're not necessarily at their most upright when they're uh, <laughs> adolescents. And yet that's there. Those That is within them. And it was so beautiful because we would have teams of uh, I mean, I, we had 12 or 14 teams that were made up of first graders all the way up through 12th graders all on one team. Yeah. And the high schoolers would help the little children. They would help teach them the instructions. There were, you know, different games where they would have to try and, you know, cross a bridge with of their own making. All and kind of cooperative games. Lots of cooperative games. Yeah. And I, I just remember seeing so many students emerge in that Michaelmas time, demonstrating this uprightness, this light, this, this, this integrity 
that maybe I overlooked before. And I just, I have, there are so many moments from those Michaelmas games where I really remember students showing, showing up and especially the high school students just demonstrating such, um, being such good role models. And that was such a beautiful thing to see. And, and one of my favorite parts of the way the Michaelmas festival was celebrated in Santa Fe. I agree. I agree. And thinking, having a little bit more time, I, I also remember the dragon bread very strongly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think the 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 ability and to give or the the chance to give the high school students the time to practice being their highest selves, taking yes. care of a young first or second grader. That was really the beauty of the Michaelmas games that I saw too. And um, and we also in Santa Fe had a community feast. Yeah. And that was really that was really amazing to all eat together and to see the bounty. It was um a chance for parents and the greater community to be involved. And I think that um again in a time where we are so separate, so many of us are so separate from the natural rhythms of the year of of feasting at the harvest time was something quite you know, quite yeah. profound and something that and many of us lives in our ancestral traditions, but may not be a part of our, our lives as they are now. Right. Taylor, did you have noticed a change in songs from when you were a student to when you were a teacher at Michaelmas? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, uh, one, one of, um, hmm, how, how to say, uh, the process of going from being a Waldorf student and living things one way and then going to a different place where things are done differently sometimes is challenging. And um, I, uh, I definitely insisted that one of, <laughs> one, of the, one of the songs that we'd sang in Austin be brought. And I, I, I think that the idea of having Michaelmas without that song was... Um, was uh, I, I just couldn't even fathom it. So um, I I taught it at a faculty meeting, and I think I was maybe on the Michaelmas planning committee that year, and was appalled that we weren't singing it. So, <laughs> uh, it's like one of those moments where you're like, really, self, let it go. But um, I think it was important. Yeah, it was important, and of course, you know, everyone taught it and they sang it too fast, but that's fine. It was. Yeah. <laughs> It's like the maple. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't even, I can't even begin to to handle how the maple is done differently in different places. But that's that's the beauty of it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, the the music and the different songs. I know there were in Austin there were different songs that maybe different sections of the school sang. Mm-hmm. Perhaps some of the more complex yeah. songs were sung by the high school. And um, but yeah, the music. The music and the singing that is a part of, because we don't talk about it so much, but the singing and recitation is so much a part of the daily rhythm in the grade school. And I think very few high school teachers are are having their students stand and sing before main lesson. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely remembered, you know, practicing the Michaelmas lines because... It was like, you're going to be standing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we practice the Michaelmas lines, but for high school students, other than their music class, yeah. in many ways, the the rhythmic daily music is yeah. not a part of their school rhythm anymore. Yeah, at least in my experience, that's true, yeah. And so I think that in these festival moments of, for the older students, getting to have this almost nostalgic look back at at these songs, and um, it's always amazing what everyone remembers. Right, right. So I'm just thinking we have Michaelmas is kind of the first big festival in in a Waldorf school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coming up, usually um, there's like a maybe a harvest festival or something. I don't really remember doing that so much growing up, um, but definitely a lantern walk. Yeah, the Lantern Walk. Yeah. Oh. What are your memories about the Lantern Walk? Oh man, Lantern Walk was so magical. And it was it was at an age where where the world was was um 
was magical, right? Yeah, absolutely. Fairies were real and gnomes were real. And the lantern walk, you know, we would eat different years. We would make our lanterns differently. Um, you know, we did the the mason jars yep. with the with the um, the tissue paper yeah. with glue, mm-hmm. and um, and then the the sparkly metal twine with the little flat uh, the stars yep. coming yep. off of it, the yep. little foil yep. stars, and we would twine it around. Yeah. So I remember that, and then in grade school, I remember doing watercolor painting, right. and cutting out a an oatmeal tin, yeah, yep. and then. Uh, gluing it around and um, and just this again it was the it was always really crazy to be at school at night at that age yep absolutely and walking in a group of people with these bobbing lanterns and singing I mean it it it, it is a magical memory yeah. in my head and not very specific right I you know I think I I've I've been doing a lot of looking back with this podcast that we're doing, and I've been trying to remember the lantern walk songs, and I've got a few, a yeah, few of them. Lantern, my lantern. Oh, I didn't even oh, I don't okay. even know that one. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, of it just being, it it almost feels like a dream. Yeah, it is kind of dreamlike in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know for me, it's most strongly come back with my son. And he did the same thing, you know, a lantern out of a watercolor painting he did. He also, in one of his classes, blew up a balloon and did paper mache around a balloon. And that's nice. The neat thing is, is that um, we've actually hung all, all of his lanterns above our bed. So they're still there kind of as a guiding, a guiding light. And my, my sweetest memory is Oliver coming home and wanting to walk do the lantern walk again in our backyard. And we walked in a circle in the backyard with holding the lantern. <laughs> That's so sweet. <laughs> That's really beautiful. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So there's also a, a funny story about lantern walk that I hope one day Carl Johnson will talk about. Okay. I, he has to tell it. It's his story, but it's so <laughs> hilarious. He's, he was leading, he was out in front of the, uh, the lantern walk and then he had a, an event happened and all the children were surprised and it's just <laughs> totally funny hilarious <laughs> okay we'll 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 mark that and and so i think you know that the the lantern walk and kind of this bringing light into the darkness then leads us into some sort of halloween all hallows eve celebration and i think this was done differently at every school yeah i i i remember in in the community that I grew up in, in Chestnut Ridge, New York, I mean, you would walk literally around the whole community, not just around the school grounds. And there would be vignettes, scenes, you know, off in the woods, and it was like crazy. And, um, yeah, I mean, what what happened in Austin for you? The Austin, I, I mean, I... I know I was a kid, but I still think that the production level, the quality of the Austin Halloween walks was unreal. I mean, mm. it was and, you know, now with time and talking to a lot of people and remembering and looking back, it, it really rested on the shoulders of a couple of really creative, passionate parents and teachers. And I think it... um for, for if I think it it might have fizzled for a little bit because that knowledge was so kind of rested on on few yeah. and it was hard to sustain. Um, but I, oh man, I I have such a a personal relationship with this festival. Halloween is my mom's birthday, and oh, so it was always nice. a celebration in my in my home. The way that the Austin it was called the Pumpkin Path, and for many years there was the pumpkin path there was the parsnip path for the youngest students and then there was this off and on occasionally the perilous path which was for (laughs) the older students but the pumpkin path really was the most fleshed out and the austin school has this kind of curving boardwalk that has these the classrooms are separate little portable buildings off of this boardwalk and Uh so there was so much work of you know putting up black plastic between certain areas so you couldn't see and the the um you would arrive and the central courtyard of the grade school would there would be 
Each class would be selling snacks and food, and there would be live music. And there were all of these scarecrows that would just kind of be discarded or draped around the the steps or on oh, the cool. boardwalk. And then when the music would start to play, they would animate. And then the scarecrows would dance. So even as you were waiting to go on the walk, you would already there was this kind of like something is afoot feeling. <laughs> and then you would start and you would be met by an angel guide. Oh, nice. And the angel guide would teach you a song and they would sing that song and the angel guide would tell you that along the way you might, there might be things come out of the darkness toward you. And when those things came out of the darkness, you would say, I am the light. I am the light. And then that, that is all you needed to say to be safe. And the angel guide would take you to the king and queen or the court of the walk. And each person would go up and explain their costume and meet the king and queen. A lot of times there was a theme. One year it was a Midsummer Night's Dream. And so you had Titania and Oberon and fairies hanging from the... It was was unreal. You had Robin Hood and Maid Marian one year. Um, And then the path would start and there were fairy tales. There were skits. There was... There was always these the trolls yeah. and the trolls and the ogres, you know, there was like, you know, fart jokes and, and someone would have a rat that they would be pretending to eat. And then, you know, I remember Susan Darcy was like crawling on her hands and knees and she'd come out of a bush behind everyone and be like grabbing people's legs. And it was, I mean, you were, you were laughing, you were invested, it was dark, so it was all so magical. And um, and then along the way, witches would come out of the woods and everyone would say, I am the light, I am the light. And the witches would cower away. And it was such a magical, magical thing. Yeah. Um, my parents were actors in the pumpkin path as I got a little older. And then the, one of the reasons this festival is so near and dear to me is that it stopped. I think it just got to be too much. I mean, it was just this monumental event. And... A girl in the grade above me, Elise Newsom, for her senior project, she was interested in event planning and said, I want to bring back the pumpkin path. And she needed a place to do it. And so she chose my family's home oh and our land, which was right down the street from yeah, the school. Nice, nice. And so, I mean, <laughs> in the months leading up or, the you know, the weeks, the days we were, it was a whole group of us girls we were carving pumpkins. We were coming up with the path. We had the theme and it was beautiful. And so for two years, it was at my home. Oh, wow. And so, um, and, and just very briefly, again, I could talk about this forever, but very briefly, my favorite memory from this process was um, we were, you know, we were a bunch of teenage girls. My family had an old barn and we were hanging out in the barn carving pumpkins. And we were, you know, it was a time where you're, you know, all putting on an iPad or an iPod and putting on, you know, the top 40 music. And then all of a sudden this, um, (laughs) like the polyphonic medieval music came on and it was so beautiful. And we were all, all of us immediately were like, oh my gosh, that's from the history of music class. And there was this one song from history of music that was so beautiful that I think it really stuck with everyone. Uh-huh. But the joke was that you'd be playing, you know, Kesha and <laughs> whatever else we were listening to back then, Pitbull. And all of a sudden then, you know, Palestrana, this ancient medieval, <laughs> you know, Christian church chant singing would come on. And then we were all carving pumpkins and my friend Lily, her knife slipped and she pretty badly sliced open her palm and one of another girl who was there her dad was coming to pick her up and he was a pediatric or a general uh, like a general practitioner but had a lot of kids in his doctor's office Uh so he was in head-to-toe clown costume and he runs in and is like playing doctor this is todd buchanan allison's dad and and (laughs) lily's bleeding she's ghastly white she's you know really freaked out because she got cut and then there's todd in a full clown costume (laughs) bandaging her up reassuring her that it's all going to be okay and he's got his red nose on but um (laughs) but yeah so for two years even as a student as an 11th grader helping Elise with her project, having it at my home. And then as a 12th grader, my class did it as a fundraiser for our senior trip. Oh, nice. And so then when I came to Santa Fe, I immediately jumped at the opportunity to help organize and plan our, um, our Halloween walk. And, uh, yeah, yeah it, was, it was super popular. 
Uh, that was an amazing story. I had never heard that one about your house. Yeah, it was it was very cool to have it at our at our home and um and for us, you know, we were I think as a as a class, we were really we were both very rambunctious but also really nostalgic. A yeah. lot of us, you know, be like Hey, you know, what color was the border of our second grade May lesson book? You know, <laughs> and, and that kind of stuff. We really took a lot of pride in, in remembering. And so the pumpkin path had been so formative for so many of us. It was many of our parents who had worked on the pumpkin path. And right, so right. Um, being able to go back and do it again and we as high schoolers putting it on, yeah. it was so fun. One year I was in the first year I was an angel guide. And that was a blast because I got to see everything. And then the second year, I was a, a troll. Oh, yeah. And um, there's some great... You made some fart jokes and stuff. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think I uh, like I had blacked out some of my teeth. I was wearing like a red uh, woolen, like old school under undergarment, yeah. like pajama set. Nice. And um, it was an absolute blast. But it's a really, it's a really special thing to be able to um, kind of step outside of the, the trick-or-treating culture yeah and give something that again um it's like it's the magic of this this time of the year where in many cultural and religious traditions around the world the veil is thin yeah exactly that there's this um you know that that the the distance between the spiritual world and and us and and the spirits and the kind of the the trickiness and yeah. the the cleverness and the humor that it's all really bubbling to the surface and um and it's such a it's such a special thing to be able to offer both to families and to the kids themselves yeah because i think so many families who are drawn to a waldorf school for their children are hungering for something, something else. They, yes. they maybe look to the culture around them and say, I don't, I don't, I don't know if this is what I want for my family or for my child. Right. So to be able to offer something like this that, I mean, I know in Santa Fe, we had a lot of people come from the greater community it every was our year. Largest, one of our largest activities outside of holiday fair. It was. Yeah. And yeah. And we offered it for free. And I mean, I just, want to applaud you and, and how, I mean, it was very popular and we had students running the vignettes like you did. And yeah. yeah, I always loved walking through it, especially with Oliver and the early childhood, you know, play was, I remember the kittens, you know, yeah. the, the, um, you know, is that a, is that a poem? What is that? The, you naughty kittens. Is that, it's like a Grimm's, not Grimm's fairy tale, but it's a, Maybe it's a nursery rhyme. rhyme. It's a nursery rhyme. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a nursery rhyme. I remember them, the rub-a-dub-dub, three men in a tub. <laughs> Who do you think they are? And and they, yeah, that was amazing. I mean, they had this huge, it looked like a realistic old wooden bathtub. I mean, the kindergarten teachers really, yeah. really came out in full force. They were particularly strong, I remember, in, in recent in recent yeah. ones. Yeah. Well, to finish out our, our, our autumn festivals, I want to just uh, make a, particular note on to end at least we did at the Santa Fe Walder School this was I never do that did this growing up but the day of the dead the Dia yeah. de los Muertos and I I just want to say that that was always very poignant for me mm -hmm. um, it was just a festival to honor those who've who've died who've crossed the threshold and we would bring in pictures and we'd have a table that um, Raquel Castilla would set up and and in, I think the most important part for me was the f chance to have each person stand up in front of the, the usually high school or maybe middle school, high school community and, and actually say a few words about the person yeah. who they were talking about. It, it was really a solemn moment, but I think it just, it just anchored and ended this time in such a beautiful way, you know, just in, in, with a lot of reverence. Definitely. In, in, um, in Austin, we celebrated Dia de los Muertos, but it was more um, something that was held by our Spanish teacher, which mm -hmm. I think is pretty typical. Yeah. And um, I have, you know, I mean, the, the symbology of Dia de los Muertos is so beautiful between the, the images of the, you know, having an altar where there are pictures presenting the favorite foods mm -hmm. of the people who have passed because the idea is that, you know, as the veil is thin, they can, you know, pass through and maybe taste, experience some of the memories of eating those things. Oh, that's right. Um, and then what's really cool, 
and especially here in Santa Fe, we see the the presence of marigolds and the the simpasuchil, as is the um, the Nahuatl word for the marigold, and that the marigolds are are lights that mm. that lead the way, right? And that having simpasuchil around your um, around the altar, presented on the altar, decorating the the gravestones, helps guide the spirits back for this right. one night, and that. Um, I think it's especially important for communities here in the Southwest to, you know, again, celebrate these cultural traditions that are present in our greater communities and, um, you know, the music, eating pan de muerto. Yes. And, um, hot chocolate, hot chocolate, all of those, all of those things. And again, just bringing, bringing the reverence to our students. And I know in Austin, my, my class had in particular experienced a lot of close loss Hmm. pretty early on. And, um, by, by the end we had, you know, um, death had, had touched us as a group many, many times very Hmm. closely, um, siblings, parents, and, I think that because of that, these festivals, even if it was maybe unspoken, it was just an, an acknowledgement of the things that that the individuals that made up a group carried. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a recognition of an aspect that doesn't get talked about a lot. But I don't think you're fully human unless you, you know, acknowledge the fact that we're mortal and. And so, yeah, I think the fact of talking about it out loud to a group, I remember talking about my grandmother and, and others, it's, it still stays with me. And it just shows, you know, it's an indication of how powerful just that simple ceremony was. Definitely. And, and I think that, you know, to have that kind of be the, the last of the autumn... Yeah. You know, that the, the fact that that festival is right on the turning point yeah. of going into the festivals that are more representative of the spirit of winter. Yes, exactly. That that's so, it's, it's, um, it's so timely. Yeah. Right. And, and the fact that it is a acknowledgement of death, a facing of death, a celebration of right. those who have passed. Yeah. That then, that then spills over into the more introspective um, more internal moments, yeah. moments that we yeah. see in the winter festivals. Right, right. This concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, much more, visit our website at hardbeeswax.transistor.fm. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can always email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. Hard Beeswax would not be possible without the expertise and time of Andy Smith, our producer and sound whisperer, who has been our hype man from the beginning. And lastly, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in with us and sharing in the absolute magic brought by our guests. Your support means the world to us. You have our utmost gratitude. <laughs>